Now this first Mass of Christmas Day, the Midnight Mass, has for its epistle that taken from St. Paul to Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Dearly beloved, the grace of God, our Savior, hath appeared to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live soberly and justly and godly in this world, looking for the blessed hope and coming of the glory of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and might cleanse to himself a people acceptable, a pursuer of good works. These things speak and exhort in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please stand for the Holy Gospel. The gospel is taken from that according to St. Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. At that time there went forth a decree from Caesar Augustus that the whole world should be enrolled. This first enrollment was made by Serenus, the governor of Syria, and all went to be enrolled, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, to be enrolled with Mary, his espoused wife, who was with child. And it came to pass that when they were there, her days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him up in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds watching and keeping the night watches over their flock. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood by them, and the brightness of God shone round about them, and they feared with a great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be to all the people. For this day is born to you in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the infant wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men of goodwill. Thus far the words of today's Holy Gospel. Please be seated here. Glory to God in the highest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Certainly there are no greater words of joy to express the wonder of the nativity, the birth of God here on earth as man. It is the cry of the angels. And this midnight mass of Christmas is the mass of the angels. I mentioned that the three masses of Christmas reflect three aspects of the account of the nativity. The appearance of the angels calling the shepherds to the manger to acknowledge their Lord and Savior, the Messiah, for whom their people had awaited, whom their people had awaited for so many centuries. This appearance of the angels in the skies over Bethlehem 
was the great announcer, as it were, the great invitation, not only to shepherds in the field that night, but to all mankind to come to the manger to acknowledge their Savior. And the second Mass today, which will be offered at 9 o'clock this morning, is the Mass of the Shepherds. For the shepherds, we find, rise up, and they go to worship. They go to find the child whose birth has been announced to them. And they find themselves not uncomfortable at all, being there in the, in the manger, stable, at the foot of such humble and seemingly ordinary people as Mary and Joseph the Blessed Mother and the Foster Father of the Son of God on earth, the shepherds find themselves very welcome there. The third Mass of the day, which will be offered at 10.30 this morning, is the Mass of the King. And that is the Mass of our Lord himself as the King of all mankind. That it is a King who is born there, and not just a King, but the King of Kings. And it is also a foreshadowing of the coming of the three kings from the east to place their crowns at the foot of this, their great king. And so in these three masses of Christmas Day, we celebrate the wonders of this holy night and we bow also before the manger. At least, I should say, we bow before the one who there is enthroned in the manger, who has a manger for his throne, and that is the Son of God, our Lord, our Redeemer. My dear people, it's so ironic that, as the Gospel tells us, the events that led to our Lord being born in Bethlehem began with the calling of a census. As you read in the Gospel today, Caesar Augustus sent out word that the whole world should be enrolled in his census. How arrogant, how arrogant of man to say the whole world must be enrolled in my census so that I must know and have an account of every single man, woman, and child in my great empire. This is so typical of human nature to want that absolute control the reason why Caesar wanted the census taken and wanted an accounting where every single human being living under his dominion was because he wanted to tax them. He wanted every one of them to be on the tax roll so that no one should escape his ability to plunder them by his tax system supporting the empire. And the situation would get only worse and worse as time went on. As the emperors came and go, came and went, so they plundered the people mercilessly. And yet, here in the manger, we find God Himself, who has come not to plunder, but in a sense to be plundered for the riches of His person. He has come not to plunder, but He has come to offer Himself as our ransom, to give Himself entirely to pay the ransom of a tyrant such as this world can only dread more and more. That is the tyranny of the fallen angel, Lucifer, and now becomes Satan. He is the man who is the tyrant of tyrants. He is not only a man, but he's a fallen angel. And we see him 
operating in the world to gain control of every single man, woman, and child again. He wants this control over them because he wants them to join him to enlist in his rebellion against God. He wants to count them among his subjects. He wants them to see him as their Lord. And it is for that very reason that the Son of God himself came into this world to rescue those who had fallen under the dominion of this merciless tyrant, Satan, who wants nothing but to devour every one of us. We must make no mistake about it, no matter what the world may tell us or how they might explain away the Incarnation, if they accept it as a fact, they may believe it, and yet they may minimize it and explain it away, that our Lord only came to accompany us on a certain journey through life. It was not that case at all. In fact, if you read the Gospels, you find over and over again our Lord mentions two things that he personally came to do, that only he could do. And the first was to give his life as the ransom for mankind's sins, the payment for the sins of mankind, the repair of the insult that our sins had caused the Father in heaven, and the damage that these sins had done to our souls. That our Lord came to repair that. As the one who would repair it, he was here to make reparation for that. He is to be our Redeemer. And he would also, in the course of his life and his teaching and his miracles here, and his sacrificial death and resurrection, our Lord would also institute his church. This is the other thing that our Lord spoke of so often. He referred to his church, not multiple churches, his church is one true church that would be the church of the Son of God made man. The one Son, the one true Son of the one true God would institute a church for himself, of himself, <coughs> which would actually be an expression of himself and to whom he would grant his own divine prerogatives to teach and to govern and sanctify mankind. But our Lord also made it very clear that that church would follow his own path in life and death, that that church would be a mirror image of himself throughout history, and that church would also suffer rejection and accusations and persecution, and perhaps even suffer what appeared to all the world to be a death, that it would appear to die. But our Lord made it very clear that he placed in his church that power to enable it to rise even from the dead. We have that faith. It has brought us here today to the feet of the manger where we find all of this power begins and from which all of this power emanates. It is in this little child. It is in this little child. My dear faithful, we see in St. Paul's epistle to Titus today that we are meant to turn away from the evil things that degrade human beings. We are meant to turn away from the things of the world which could draw us to deny God, which would prompt us to take the Son of God off the cross, to take him out of the manger, to empty our hearts of this Son of God, and to fill our hearts with the things of the world, things which God created to be good, but which for us are toxic because of our own personal 
weaknesses now due to sin. We find these things so enticing, so engaging, so gratifying, that we can even enthrow these things as our gods and make idols out of them. And so St. Paul warns us that we must not do that. We must not think as the pagans think, who worship the things of the world as though they were the very purpose of their lives. No, we must live in a godly fashion in the world, and justly and soberly, and have that self-control that comes from not only human effort but divine grace. We have to have that self-control so that we can turn ourselves to our Lord and Savior and we can proclaim him our God and not allow ourselves to be taken captive by some evil power that wishes us no good. But not only are we meant to purify ourselves of the evil things, the things that we make evil because the evil is within us, the weakness and the disorder, because that's what evil is. It's a disorder. It's a disorder of loving something in spite of God, the creator of all, the world and the redeemer of all of us. Evil is a disorder in the heart, soul of men. But our Lord doesn't want us only to restore the order by his grace. He wants us to place it at his service. Notice St. Paul says to Titus that we now must be a pursuer of good works. Every now and then you might hear someone say, well, I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm a friend of God. I'm pleasing to God. I have nothing to be afraid of in terms of judgment. I haven't done anything that wrong. Well, if that's all one can say for his life is that he hasn't done anything that wrong, again, one might ask, well, what does he have to show for the life that he has? Simply that he hasn't done anything terribly evil, at least not in his own mind. But God has given us the power to do great good. God has given us the power and the command to do great good for him and out of love for him. Our faith gives rise to hope, and that faith and hope should engender charity. And that charity is the driving force of all the good that we can do. Now, we can't rest on the absence of our laurels simply because we haven't, in our own minds, done terrible things. We can point to so many others who have done much worse things than we have done. And yet, this will not save us. It is fidelity to our Lord and our willingness to be faithful to him. To be, as St. Paul says, a pursuer of good works, to do the good we can, while we can, here on this earth, out of love for our Lord. That is what we are called to do. But even if we could do all the good works in the world, we could never earn heaven. We can only receive it as a great gift from God. We can only receive his grace, which, as you know from the Catechism, tells you it is a gift, a supernatural gift of God given to you. And so heaven itself is something that cannot be earned. Living in the grace of God, yes, that is what our Lord wants of us day by day now. But if we lived all of our lives in the grace of God, we still could not earn heaven any more than we could earn him. We cannot earn him. We cannot earn the Son of God as a baby in the manger. We cannot earn the Incarnation. We cannot earn the Son of God hanging in death upon the cross. We cannot earn the redemption. We cannot earn our Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead. We cannot earn the resurrection. These are precious gifts of God, unspeakably great supernatural gifts surpassing all the powers of human nature, not only to earn but even to understand. 
But what God does want us to do, though, is do the good we can with the means, the resources, the graces that he gives us, to respond to the graces that he gives, to accomplish his work here in this world. That's what God wants of us. That's what he must demand of us. That's what we must be willing to give. But even then, we must see ourselves still as a poor servant who can do no more than he is given to do. We see the greatness of this gift of God lying here in the manger, who is the remedy for all mankind's illness. So many of us during this season of the year have fallen ill, some to the flu, others to cold, and so on. And we know that there are many afflictions we have, a body that we cannot cure, uh, that we are working, laboring, not only through the night, through the day, through the weeks, through the years, we are laboring to find cures for these diseases, the various cancers that attack us and uh, the various things that attack our hearts and all the rest of us that bring us down and eventually will take our lives in this world. How we labor to remedy these things. And yet, the greatest evil, the greatest illness is that of the human soul. And we have the remedy for all the evils that afflict the human soul. We have the medicine to cure all the evils of the human soul. And that medicine, that remedy is this little child in the manger of Bethlehem so long ago. He has come to be the Redeemer, the remedy for all the evils that beset us. So we go to him. Now I ask you this year to make a special point of appreciating the greatness of God and his goodness toward you. Each one of us should strive to cultivate virtues. And one of the great virtues we need so much is the virtue of gratitude, the virtue of being thankful. It is not something that comes naturally to us because by our fallen human nature, we are very proud. And when we are grateful, we acknowledge that we have to receive a blessing from someone else who has it when we don't. Someone else who is willing to give it to us as a gift. So we have to humble ourselves in being grateful. So many times we go through life and we have things apparently going very well for us. We have things seemingly set in order. Excellent health, very comfortable circumstances. People love us. We want for nothing. We don't have to worry about going to bed at night hungry. We don't have to worry about being in danger when we turn the light out at night. We are safe. We have so many things that we take for granted. And then all of a sudden, illness strikes or want or something happens. And we wonder what happened as though someone changed the rules. Well, perhaps God is telling us that you need to be grateful for the blessings you have and appreciate them. God is showing us that we should not take these things all for granted because that is the way we lose them. So when you have someone very near and dear to you who is suffering some great sorrow or great want or great affliction, think of what you could do for them in terms of helping them. 
to show God gratitude that they are in your lives, that he has given you to know them and to care about them and to love them and be loved by them. See not only what you can do for yourselves, but you can do for those whom God has given you to know and love. There are many people in the world today for whom you are very thankful. I'm sure you are grateful to God for those friends, dear ones, relatives, family members you have. Well, show that gratitude. Don't just think it, don't just express it in words, but show it in action. That is one way to be this pursuer of good works that St. Paul says to Titus we all must be. To show that gratitude in action for the many blessings of God. The greatest blessing, though, is in the manger where we go tonight. As I consecrate the host and the chalice on the altar today, recognize there your Lord and Savior. Recognize the one who was born in the manger long ago for you. He still continues to come onto our altars by the mystery of the consecration at Mass, a reenactment, as it were, of the incarnation, but in such a way that our Lord's presence there on the altar at every Mass mirrors his entire life, his conception within the womb of Our Lady and becoming man. And also the consecration as it takes place with the double, the double consecration or transubstantiation of the host and the wine and the chalice signifying not only his life but also his death, his sacrificial death for us. And the fact that we recognize him here and now tells us that now his body is risen and glorified in heaven. And it is through that glory that he makes himself presence upon the altar. It is all here. His entire life and death and resurrection are made present for us at every Mass that, that is offered. Thank God for that great, great grace that you have faith to recognize him on the altar, even as you recognize him in the manger. May God bless you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.